Welcome to Ask the Therapist, the podcast that invites you into the therapist room to explore the world of mental health with me, your host, Sarah Rees. Hello and welcome to this episode of Ask the Therapist. It's lovely to have you here. Today I'm talking with Becky Grace. Becky is a cognitive behavioural therapist. She works in private practice and she has a Substack community under the same name, Becky Grace Therapy. She's also a trained yoga teacher and she helps women break the binge restrict cycle. So we're going to be talking about binge eating and overeating and our relationship with food. Becky has a lived experience of struggling with binge eating and she shares some of her story today. I know you're going to find this really valuable whether you struggle with binge eating or you know somebody who does. There's going to be lots of resources and practical tips for you to take away. Welcome to Ask a Therapist, Becky. It's amazing to have you here. So can you start by telling us a little bit about you and what you do? So yeah, I'm Becky. I'm um, a CBT therapist who is specialising in working with women with binge eating disorder. And yeah, I have my private therapy practice and work part-time in the NHS. Fantastic. And binge eating disorder, that's kind of, it's a real specialism that, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about binge eating and what it looks like, what the common symptoms are? So there's this common kind of misconception about binge eating disorder where where there can be obviously emotional eating as well so what I tend to do is just break down kind of like the two and the difference between them because a lot of people emotionally eat I mean we all to some degree at some some point emotionally eat but the difference in terms of what binge eating disorder actually is it's characterized by if like continuing recurrent episodes of consuming large amounts of food in a short period of time but it's usually to the point of discomfort or pain so whereas emotional eating is more like you know like I don't know you go through a breakup and you want to have some sad ice cream as I call it um you know that that kind of thing is like (laughs) relatively okay and normal but it's more the the frequency the continuation of it there's a kind of like a rapidness to it and eating when not physically hungry as well um usually eating alone and there's usually uh, height like you know there's lots of shame and there's lots of guilt that's attached to it there's distress as well yeah it's secretly done as well would you say or generally yeah yeah usually done and kind of thrives in isolation sometimes I do see people where you know they are eating to assess but it, it's a, about that I think it's the shame that's attached to it I think is really strong shame that they've done it in the first place yeah. Um, and then it's it's kind of like a switch almost. It's like I kind of can it to like being almost like disassociation in a way. Like this kind of you know it's kind of like this switch, and then it's repeated, and you that feeling that you can't stop. And I've heard when I've worked with it, it's not something I see that much of in in private practice. And I think generally people with eating they're kind of pushed towards more specialist services because it it requires a more fuller multidisciplinary team. But some people that have described it to me like they they have a hole inside them that they're just trying to fill and that they just can't. Have you heard that? Yeah, not that particular phrase, but like I like that phrase in terms of describing it. Obviously, not the experience, but yeah I like yeah it's it's an accurate kind of description is that kind of feeling of fullness and feeling that em- yeah emptiness and emotions start you know it's, it's it's kind of almost a I suppose a difficulty in sitting with those difficult emotions as well 
And how has your own personal experience shaped your work with people and how you support and help people? So much. I mean, I mean, I had like a 30 year lived experience of binge eating disorder, um, nearly 40 now. I'm about five years down the road in terms of recovery. And it was it was really important for me to not work in this area until I'd sorted my own stuff out. I think that does it helps and it hinders sometimes, I think. So it's it's helpful because I can have the compassion, hopefully, to really to kind of get it in terms of that isolation, that uncontrollability. Like I, I get it. But obviously my experience isn't that other person's experience. And sometimes it's just thinking about that as well, like that individuality, you know, there are these common threads of how binge eating is experienced. But there'll be differences in how it presents, obviously, from person to person, um, like with anything else. Was it difficult to talk about it and share it? I have to say that has been, that well, had been initially tricky. I think I'm now, I'm now okay with it and I'm getting more and more confident about speaking about it. The more, obviously, I'm, I'm working in the area. But yeah, initially, I think it was quite difficult to really you know again it's it's being visible and and, and showing that face but I I think it's really important because I think a lot of time and I I see this obviously in in NHS kind of eating disorder work you know people need to see say a role model or someone who's 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 come through the other side and that is possible and that there is hope for recovery and it's not something you have to to live with chronically yeah if you're supported through it. Yeah, I can imagine so many people choose to work with you because you've been through what they're going through. That is so connecting, isn't yeah. it? To see people, somebody that's come through it, knows what you're talking about. And yet sometimes in the world of therapy, we're told to kind of not say too much about us ourselves. So it's, it's tricky, mm, isn't it's it? It's a, tr- a tricky line, but I'm always thinking about, you know, is this relevant? Is this appropriate? You know, like in terms of what? I say I, I have that initial discussion usually at the first session of like obviously you know I have some lived experience but you know the sessions aren't about me they're about <laughs> you so it, it's I think it's just about again naming and being open about you know yeah my experience isn't your experience we're exploring your experience in this but I can have the compassion and I understand that lived experience and also people would really do want that lived experience in their therapist I've noticed most of the people I see or inquiries I've had are like I've come to you because you have lived experience of it and I would imagine that's because of the shame isn't there especially you know with with lots of eating problems people have so much shame around it and difficulty in sharing it what do you think underlies binge eating disorder I guess it's different for so many people but is the common themes of of what lies underneath it's complex There's the sort of, you know, there's the vein in terms of like the diet culture aspect. Our whole like westernized culture is is based around kind of being small with the thin ideal and we're rewarded and praised for it as well, which means that, you know, from a core belief standpoint, from, you know, the belief we're exploring in eating disorders is that common, like it's that fear of weight gain. It's not just about fear of weight gain, though. It's the, like the fear of catastrophic immediate weight gain, that it's it's just going to go out, out of control immediately. And again, I think that's perpetuated by diets, promoting those things. But I do think a lot of it does, there are obviously like a lot of things stem from, you know, childhood experiences, the environment, like the systems. And I think the environment around us 
is so important to the development of it. You know, if you saw your your parents sort of cope with their emotions in a certain way, you will copy that. I mean, that was in my in my instance. You know, I'm you know I've described examples where we we'd have like two hundred gram bars of dairy milk like hidden up on a on a cupboard, and and you know there was all this kind of like normalized kind of dysfunctional eating patterns within my household. But again, I, th- I think there's there's something about the sitting with distress and the sitting with emotions. But the, there is usually a trigger, though, like a trigger point, usually in that adolescent sort of time frame. Um, and again, I, I suppose in my experience, when I was fifteen, I am, um, you know, I felt I was invisible, I was ignored, and and then I lost a load of weight, and then suddenly I was seen, and everyone was like again coming down to that reinforcement the praise and kind of like you know oh you know they're praising me for being kind of small when suddenly I'm on show and I'm visible and um yeah and it, and then so then you know that shapes your belief of well people are only interested in me if I'm small it's so powerful that I lost a lot of what I lost about I think it was about two stone really quickly because I thought it was because I was naturally slim and that was just my metabolism. I had a thyroid condition, which meant that I was losing lots of weight and I was actually really ill and I just didn't realise it. But the praise that I got and it was like, wow. Yeah. So I think it like the whole thing about commenting on people's shape and size, that's endemic everywhere. We're always, you know, I say we, the collective we, but people tend to remark on someone's weight and actually you could be really ill as you've described. Yeah, yeah, and it's seen as a sign of health, sudden weight loss, being too thin. It's it's bizarre, isn't it? And you, you're a CBT therapist, but you're also you're a trained yoga teacher. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. How do those two things go together? Well, there's an extended sort of part to that where I was a, a fitness trainer, a personal trainer, and group fitness instructor for ten years before I became a yoga teacher. But ultimately, in terms of how I use use the yoga, it's it's about connecting to your body, becoming present in your body, sitting with yourself, using breath work at times to help bring that person back into their body. Because I've got this kind of, again, this is probably the more woo-woo side of me, or, or I don't know, but like it, it's this sense of like this is this real disconnection from the self. So that's a bit bit less cognitive I suppose possibly a bit more somatic or body-based in its approach but I think they both go together so that kind of top down with the cognitive work but the bottom up as well with the body work as well and I think the combination together is what really helps support someone to to recover yoga for me has has brought me back to myself and again it really depends also on the type of yoga because again westernized yoga it's all about do it really hard you know like getting to certain shapes and actually that's not what yoga is but I could probably spend hours talking about that yeah that more kind of workout based rather than more compassion based obviously more spiritual more you know the softness of yoga and it's not about the shapes you get into or them being in a precise way it's more about how they feel in your body and it's not about being flexible yeah, that's lovely. And, and was that a real conscious shift then to go from being a, a personal trainer where you, to yoga? How did you find yoga? I found it through through teaching fitness classes. So I taught body balance, which is a Les Mills class for 
many years and I came to that through the other Les Mills classes which are all sorts of different types you see them in, in many gyms but um like which was more like combat which was more like boxing based and and body attack which was all like high impact cardio so that real I suppose punishing almost element of of exercise that it can be seen that way so I was I was starting to burn out as a fitness trainer Bearing in mind, I was working in mental health during the day and doing this by night. I can't even believe I used to do all of those things together. Absolute recipe for burnout. But um, yeah, and then I came to Body Balance and I thought, like, oh, this feels much better in my body. I don't feel as pressured or as tense. And I allowed me to give compassion and kindness to myself, which was probably the first time in my life that I've ever done that. Whereas before it was kind of like this almost like unrelenting standards, the perfectionism that comes with a lot of presentation as well with eating disorders that this kind of striving there's always like this constant striving to be better because you're not you know feeling feeling not good enough and not worthy you know and as I said we're being t- taught that you know to be small I'm visible when I'm wanted and I'm liked so it just it kept me maintaining it in terms of the belief and how effective is CBT for binge eating? So um, there is two main types of CBT for eating disorders in general, and both are applicable to binge eating disorder. So there's CBTE and CBTT. CBTE is kind of a, a long form kind of cognitive approach. The evidence base is, I can't give you percentages, but there's good there's, there's good evidence base in terms of recovery for both CBTE and CBTT. So CBTE is the longer version, usually 20 to 40 sessions, and CBTT is like a condensed, and I don't want to say bite-sized, but it is a bite-sized kind of version of CBTE. So there's like 10 sessions and then two follow-ups that come later, and that's much more behavioural-based, whereas the CBTE is obviously much longer, and it's much more quite individualised, actually. It's almost less protocol-driven, unlike other CBT uh, approaches i think cbtt is definitely more like your other sort of protocol approaches it's you've got a, a lot to fit in those sessions and it follows a very defined structure but cbta more individualized you've got to build trust with the person that takes can take longer sometimes i feel with eating issues but yeah there's good evidence base for both are the particular strategies that you think are most helpful oh, yeah. by far like um, the behavioural stuff in in well in both because it covers both the behavioural kind of scientific element of kind of getting someone with whether binge eating or any other eating disorder getting them to eat regularly every three to four hours keeping those blood sugar levels topped up and optimal when you're in a state of restriction your your blood sugars are not going to be optimal and they're going to be going all over the place and they're going to lead to a binge later on and that's usually what keeps it kind of going that's what the bin why the binges are occurring is because there's restriction somewhere along the line and you know that there's quite a sort of common thing you know where a woman might wake up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and not have breakfast and sorry this is a little bit of generalization but I see it so often <laughs> in practice and otherwise where you wake up you just drink coffee and off you go and you don't have breakfast and that's not great for your hormones either, as well as see your blood sugar levels. So yeah, the regular eating is like the the base tenant level of any recovery. So every three to four hours, making sure that you eat preferably, obviously, from a balanced plate uh, and by a balanced plate. So protein, carbs, and fat. Just again, not worrying about the data or all the numbers or anything like that. It's just about getting you know 
teaching the body not to be in restriction or scarcity anymore and that there is food coming. Yeah. And this episode will be going out around Christmas time. If somebody was struggling with binge eating, what what's Christmas time like with all this food and this kind of pressure to eat as much as you can coming up for January where we're, everybody's going to be on a diet? Is it a particularly tough time? For you know, people? we all have to eat. Like <laughs> from an alcohol perspective, you can give up alcohol or, you know, like as hard as that may be. But you, you need to eat to be able to to function and around Christmas you've got the social aspects of kind of Christmas families may or may not be getting together and um you know comments can be made and um but the general overarching like like must yeah as you say eat more and more and that's normalized it's kind of normalized to binge I think it is, yeah. We have it's the only time we have chocolates everywhere, all over the house, on the tray, in bowls. Food, excessive food is is everywhere, isn't it? If you'd like to find out more about life behind the scenes of private practice, then why not join us in our Therapist Corner Substack community? Therapist Corner on Substack offers an exclusive look behind the scenes of the business of therapy, bringing together diverse perspectives and exploring the how and why of the business of therapy. Visit therapistcorner.co.uk to sign up or for more information. Are there any common myths that you find around binge eating or misunderstandings? Maybe just the sense of we just need to be able to stop that kind of aspect to it so people other people around not not guessing it that it's really yeah not also not understanding maybe the seriousness of it because i think sometimes this is it's almost inequalities with eating disorders in a way whereas like you know with with anorexia we we know in terms of that low body weight you know that can be very visibly seen and sometimes binge eating disorder people you know you might have a quote-unquote normal BMI, body mass index, but you might be really struggling with binge eating disorder. Or you might also be in a larger body and have binge eating disorder. So this, I suppose it's a misconception of what an eating disorder looks like. You, you, can't, you can't tell by, just by looking at someone who has an eating disorder and who doesn't. What are the risks with binge eating? Again, I, I think very much mood aspects, blood glucose levels you know, being pre-diabetic, diabetes, other aspects are probably the more kind of IBS sort of based. I see a fair few clients who've got like fibromyalgia. Um, but again, I'm, I can't say corroborate in terms of evidence that, that is causing it, but just... Your clinical kind of what you see. Yeah, inflammation, chronic inflammation, some kind of autoimmune. Yeah, that's my that's my clinical kind of observation. And you talk about the social model of mental health and its relevance to understanding and addressing eating disorders. Can you tell us a bit about that? So, yeah, I think when I I trained as a a mental health nurse first before I became a CBT therapist and you talk about the the, the biopsychosocial model um, and that's what I've always kind of, you know, based my, I suppose, ethos and thinking around. But over time and over the years I just feel like socially like the you know I'm very kind of systems based in my thinking I'm thinking about the society the environment the culture poverty you know quite social justice aspects to it but if there's inequalities that's going to affect your mental health and I think 
with eating disorders as well, just going back to talking about the family involvement within that, you know, if if someone, you know, is in a family where things are probably quite strict or controlled otherwise, or, you know, like there's, I think there's so much more that is social based and we can actually tackle those things to an extent. But yeah, I've always been intrigued by the effect of culture on on people and religion as well and you know how that interplays with their beliefs and so you know this kind of trying to you're trying to loosen the belief about fasting and and and, you know someone fasting for ramadan you know like there's going to be an interference in terms of that belief and when you're working on that together as well yeah there's loads i could say on this you take a, a very holistic view of it don't you yeah it's not that i'm discounting the others by any stretch but I'm always thinking really wide. Really broadly. And you talk about a term that I've not heard before, but medical gaslighting. Tell us about that. So, again, probably this comes from a personal experience of medical gaslighting as well. But um, I suppose I'm quite feminist in my approach as well. And I see women's pain and distress not being heard. As we're talking about it, I'm thinking, you know, I told you about that thyroid thing. I lost a lot of weight and then I put on a lot of weight because that's the your thyroid overcompensates and then it kind of corrects itself. So when I went to the nurse, it was an annual check and I'd like my weight is like severely. And I was just given loads of diet sheets and like really shamed into you know, your overeating and to put on this amount of weight in such it isn't great. And as we're talking then, I was thinking, God, that's that's kind of it. Like, if she just asked me a few more questions, she might have realised that I hadn't changed my diet. You know, in fact, I was eating less than ever. I was actually unwell. There's this this focus on what again is this hyper focus on weight in within healthcare itself, and you know there are there are and obviously my work is predominantly with women, but it, it like going to your GP and getting kind of heard around sort of PCOS, polycystic ovaries or endometriosis um, or being perimenopausal or menopausal and just generally struggling with your menstrual cycle, a lot of time that is is dismissed um, and I've experienced it. Um, I had a gynecological issue in my early 20s and um, I ended up with sepsis because, you know, I went back and again and again and I wasn't I wasn't being heard. So you're trying to voice what's going on and then being kind of shut down. So I think that particularly goes on a lot when it comes to with weight as well. So I see so many women come to me who are like, but I need to lose weight for my health. And I absolutely, you understand that, but there are other facets that make up health that aren't just weight, but there seems to be a real focus on that in healthcare. And that means sometimes I think things get missed or or just, I think, I think endometriosis, it's like it, 10 years, I think, before some, someone who actually gets it potentially diagnosed if it's, if it's dismissed. So women's pain and distress is then generally thought of as more emotional and mental rather than there actually being something going on. If somebody was listening thinking, I actually struggle with eating and binge eating, What's it like for those people to go to their GP? Do many people go to their GP and ask for help or what routes do they take into services? I would say, I mean, I, I definitely, I'm definitely seeing more like within my, you know, just splitting my head in two in my NHS and private role. I'm, I'm definitely seeing more binge eating coming in from from an NHS perspective. 
but I think it can be a, a, a real challenge potentially for again you know if it's as I said if it's anorexia or bulimia I think again it's either really really visible that you can see and that's distressing for people to see and they can't sit with that distress themselves um or with bulimia you know like oh my goodness it's you know it's vomiting it's it, it, it's yeah things that appear distressful whereas binge eating again I think it comes down to that normalizing in culture even as you say at Christmas to binge eat so for it to be taken seriously by a GP obviously it's going to be it's going to vary uh, from GP to GP. Could they self-refer is that something that's open to people? Generally you have to go through GP again depending on the area there are like other services out there that aren't obviously NHS based as well that you can self-refer to dependent on the local area but they tend to be more charity based and they will be as I say, the more what we call the mild to sort of moderate end. But generally, I still think you should go and see your GP as a first port of call and see how you get on because, I, you know, I can't speak for every experience. But yeah, still doing that. And then they may also then signpost you to organisations as well that are local who, who can support at that more mild to, to moderate end. But Generally, yeah, it's just making sure that GPs can see kind of the moderate to severe kind of eating disorder and be able to to refer that in to NHS because that does need more support. More specialised support. And you talk about trusting one's intuition and how that plays a role in overcoming eating problems. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's definitely more the spiritual side of me, I think. But it also comes into the medical gaslighting as well. It's about actually just trusting that you are trusting your experience and not kind of almost gaslighting yourself in that and going well will they know best or um or yeah is that kind of disconnecting from the body as well like the more in touch you can get with in with your intuition the more you're going to be able to live a more kind of free authentic life so I feel like intuition is everything um my intuition has has never never been wrong but it can get messy if you're not well, can't it? Or if you're struggling or you're reading one thing and you're feeling another. It's just really kind of following what you need and learning more about yourself. It's, can you share some practical tools and techniques that you use to support people? Yeah, so there is the, um, it's called um, Overcoming Binge Eating but it actually is recommended for all eating disorders. The, the name's a bit of a misnomer, but obviously if you do have been eating, then, you know, appropriate. And that's by uh, Fairburn. Yeah, that would be the key one. But that's sort of the more in terms of evidence-based recovery book. But I, I do recommend some people like who are on social media, um, dependent obviously on who they are. So Alex Light, for example, she's got a book called um, oh, You Are Not a Before Picture. Um, and that's more in terms of the body image side of things, which I find a really good, helpful read. Um, thinking about diet culture, I think family and carers. Um, there's, I think that's important to mention as well. There's a book uh, for them, the Mortley book for patients and carers of loved ones. I can't remember if that's the exact title uh, with eating disorders, which is I I always recommend as well because families are affected because it's a social experience with food as well and they can be impacted by it too yeah that's really useful and you've set up a Substack recently haven't you can you tell us a bit about that who it's for what kind of things people could expect to find so um my Substack it's around eating disorders but also women's mental health and I'm still kind of fine-tuning it at the moment but that's 
also kind of a community as well. So, um, yeah, and I set that up obviously on on a good recommendation about Substack, <laughs> but, but but also I'm I'm quite a thinker, <laughs> and um, I wanted somewhere I could channel that thinking um and have some form of long form content online because obviously social media is great but we it's very short attention grabbing quite binary like yes or no join this side join that side and I was just wanting something where I could express myself as well because that's important in this process get out everything that I'm thinking but also use it as a tool I feel to with my clients actually so I'm using like the the post on their blog post to do um there's posts on there obviously about like you know what do I do for my daughter who's got binge eating and ADHD for example um and you know just different potentially informative posts and like I then give them those links to my clients as well um so it's almost like a, it's a resource um but it's also kind of yeah I learn yeah uh, kind of a, a wider commentary um for, for my thoughts <laughs> as well I've really been enjoying your posts and and I think they definitely deserve much longer format don't they and you write very authentically and really from the heart they're really great to consume so for people who are struggling but also for therapists because I think this we don't get much about eating disorders in our training well nothing at all it, it takes going on the specialized courses and then often you still feel quite unprepared to work in this specialized area it's you know there's not much out there is there in terms of training and stuff so it's great to be able to have that as a, as a resource agreed there's this sort of quite a bit I think a little bit of gatekeeping that goes on with with the eating disorder information out there and it's quite hard to access and find but there's all these you know and our you know like things like the book recommendations I have in the post as well but just somewhere where you can get access to this information like either freely or, or with paid options as well yeah and do you do supervision for therapists and coaching and stuff I will be <laughs> will you on its way watch this space so that yeah <laughs> fantastic so if somebody listening to this thought okay maybe I need to access support would there I mean I think we might have covered this off is there first step the GP is there GP but also I totally forgot to recommend Beat um, and Beat are such a great organization they've got this great tool called Help Finder on their website and it actually takes you through step by step what to do and for your local area so you can like put in your postcode and obviously it will recommend their options first it will kind of go say speak to your GP or access one of our resources or one of our sort of peer groups or um, and then it will also recommend um, if you're on there which I am private therapists on there as well so it's really good at like just giving you what step by step what you need to do fantastic I mean, it's difficult to get a GP appointments sometimes at the moment, isn't it? And I think it's nice to have other options of like, you know, coming to your substart, going to Beats and then speaking with the GP. It's about doing a few things sometimes, isn't it? And it might be relatives that want some of that information. So thank you so much for going through that. And there's a question that I ask all my guests, and it sounds like 15 was a really pivotal time for you in your life. But if you could go back to your 15-year-old self, what would you say to her? Um, I, was, I was about to swear, but I'm not going to swear. <laughs> but yeah, just 
that it's all a load of rubbish <laughs> what you're hearing around you and experiencing around you people do love and accept you for who you are not what you weigh and you will find your people <laughs> who accept you and love you for who you are one day oh that's lovely thank you so much for sharing that and if people wanted to find you where are you most active i'll be putting all the links in the show notes so substat but i see you a lot on instagram and and your dogs yes <laughs> um i'm instagram with my sausage dogs um <laughs> my therapy assistant dogs yes um they make appearances lots and um i'd say instagram um and substack mainly i do have like facebook linkedin tiktok all the things but generally i'm most active on those two instagram and substack amazing i shall put all the links and people can come and see all your fantastic work that you're doing thank you so much it's such a valuable episode thank you thank you Thank you for listening to today's episode of Ask the Therapist. I'll be discussing all you've heard in this episode and more over in the Therapist Corner community on Substack. To join me there, just click on the link in the show notes. Until next time, take care of your mental well-being as you continue on the path to becoming the best version of yourself.